Uh, I'm going to invite um, Michaela to come forward now and read the, the passage for us. We're going to be in John 14. If you have your bulletin, it's printed in the bulletin. If you have your scriptures, John 14, verses 1 through 7 is where we'll be. And we're going to be looking at um, I am the way and the truth and the life uh, this morning as we continue our series of the I am statements in John. John 14, 1 through 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so we, were, we are continuing on in our series. Thank you, Michaela, for that. Uh, in uh, the book of John, we're looking at the I am statements where, where Jesus himself is claiming to be, just by the statement, I am, he's claiming to be God. Remember, we talked about this. The, the Jewish people would have known that this, this term, I am, would have taken them back to the, to the Old Testament when God said, this is who I am. I am who I am. I am the self-existing one. So we're looking at, I'm going to kind of talk about context, big picture for John. He, it is the fourth gospel. Um, I've mentioned this before, but you know, the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. We'll see lots of overlap in those gospels, but John has a very different flavor. And his purpose in his uh, book is to show that eternal life comes only through the Son of God. And it's to prove conclusively that Jesus, the one who we're reading about throughout the scriptures, is the Son of God. It's to prove that fact. So when he is proposing and he's he's writing down Jesus' words, I am, that's to, to trigger the mind of the people that know the Old Testament, saying he's claiming deity. He is claiming to be God. So we're in John chapter 14. Uh, this morning. I'm going to give you a, a context of our, our immediate passage in John uh, chapter 13. We see this is when Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. And during this chapter, he actually gives the disciples three different, really, uh, what they would consider really terrible news, like really three different accounts. He speaks of one of his disciples betraying him. He says, one of you will walk away and actually betray me. Secondly, he speaks of his own leaving. He said, I am going to go. I'm leaving you. I'm going to leave this earth. Thirdly, he, he foretells of Peter's three denials. Okay, so earlier in chapter 12, we actually see that Jesus himself says that my soul is troubled. And in 13, one chapter before we are this morning, Jesus is described as troubled in spirit. So if you think about that, he's the leader, right, of this group of people, of, of the disciples. So the disciples can hear this with their ears and feel that Jesus is troubled. So at the least, we can say that coming into this text today, the disciples are troubled. 
in their hearts. And we're going to see that right from the beginning as Jesus speaks to us. But let's pray as we get into the passage. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have revealed yourself to us, uh, not only in the scriptures, um, but by your son, Father, that you sent him in the flesh to be your word incarnate, that you have revealed yourself to us through him. And Father, we pray as we open your word this morning that you would help us um, to not only focus with our minds, but look at our own hearts and see where we need to change. We need to become more in your likeness, and we plead that you would change us, Father, because we know that it is only of you that we can be sanctified. So be here with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to tell you a story of a dad and uh, a three-year-old son. It's not myself, so you don't have to uh, taunt me about this story afterwards. It's actually a boy. Not I only have girls, so it's not me in this, in this story. But there's a story of a dad holding a three-year-old boy in a pool. And he's in the shallow end, and they're having a good time. You think about a three-year-old probably splashing his dad some, and um, the, the son feels very secure in his dad's arms, right? But for fun, if you know a dad and a son, like my dad would have done to me probably when I was three, he starts walking towards the deep end, and the, and the water gets higher and higher on the son's body. And you can imagine the three-year-old face, right? Like anxiety just starts going stronger and stronger on his face and he's holding tightly and tighter and tighter to his father but what he doesn't understand that his dad is walking and he's still walking on the ground right he's walking on the ground and he's not getting beyond his depth if the little boy would be able to analyze that situation he would be able to understand that nothing has changed that there's no reason for increased anxiety that that honestly the water at any depth would be over the three-year-old's head, right? But the father walking a little bit to the deep end does not change anything for him at all. Even in the shallowest part, he would have drowned on his own. But his father is holding him. His safety anywhere in the pool is dependent upon his dad. So his dad is trying to play a joke, right? But he is struck with fear. We see that very similar picture in our own lives often, right? That, that we feel like we're getting out of our depth. We're going into the deep end. Problems abound. A, a job is lost. A child goes wayward. And our temptation is to panic. It's to worry that we don't have control over the situation. But if we, at those times, we tend to doubt our security, that, that God has a plan for us, that he is sovereign over all of creation. We really start to doubt that, is Christ really here for me? Is he present? So as with the child in the pool, the truth is we're never in control fully, right? Like we can grasp onto control and feel like we can control these things, but the most valuable things in life are out of our control. That God is actually the one who is in control of them all, that he is, we are held up by his grace, and that never changes. He can go into the deepest ocean, and and we are secure in him. God is never out of his depth. Therefore, when we feel like we're going deeper into life, when worries 
of the worries of life rise, we are safe in the hands of God. So I have an outline printed for you in your bulletin. So I'm kind of, the theme for today is Christ is the only way to the Father. We're going to really look at this idea of security, that if you're in Christ, you are secure no matter what the situation, because he is the one way. He is the one way. And if you are in him, that one way, then you are secure. So we're going to look at these three things. First, we're going to look at the troubled heart. We mentioned the disciples are troubled in heart. Jesus confronts that right from the beginning in verse 1. Secondly, we're going to look at the prepared place. Thirdly, we're going to look at the provided way. So if you will, look with me at verse 1. We're going to look at the troubled heart. So I want you to think about Jesus, specifically the man, the person in this text. Okay? I want you to think that he knows that the cross is coming. He knows he's about to pay the penalty for sin. So he has to be troubled, right? He has to be, just, just, I mean, in Garden of Gethsemane, just a few chapters later, he's sweating blood. I've been pretty stressed out in my life. I've never sweat blood, right? Like that, that is really showing the, the extent of his stress. And yet, in our text today, he knows that the disciples are troubled as well. And he knows that they've heard of the betrayal that's going to happen, that Jesus is going to leave, that Peter, who's later called the rock of the disciples, denies him three times. They're probably not at their best, right? The disciples are probably not on their A game. Their hearts are wrapped up in the worries of life. So in verse 1, Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So Jesus knows that their hearts are troubled. He knows that the many stresses that he just, just presented to them are getting the best of them. And you can imagine this own situation in your life, right? The time when not only one thing goes wrong, but there's many things that are going wrong. Maybe your boss gave you bad news, and you come home to find that a friend or spouse is deeply ill. Maybe that your kids have run away from the Lord, and, and at the same time you're not able to pay the mortgage. We all have hard times where, where it's like one thing after the other just pops up. And like you feel like you, I can't get a break. What does Jesus say in this text is the solution to a troubled heart? He says this, believe in God. Believe in me also. Now in the original language, uh, this could actually be translated in two different ways. So we have to, when this happens in translation, you have to take the context as a whole and see what the, what the meaning is supposed to be. So the word believe in the original language could be um, translated as an indicative or a truth. It's like saying, oh, remember disciples, you believe in God. Remember that? You believe in me also. Remember? The other way it could be translated is as a command. He's saying, disciples, you're troubled. Believe in God. He's calling them to believe in him. And, and with the context of where we are in the scriptures, most translators will say that's, that's the correct interpretation, is that it's Jesus commanding them, saying, turn to God and believe in him in your trouble. He's exhorting the disciples to believe in Jesus. So, during seminary, my, uh, my kids and I and, and Allison would go to Great Wolf Lodge, and we lived in St. Louis, and we would drive three hours. It was in Kansas City, and it was kind of like a, a respite for us. It was a way, a place for us to, de- like we couldn't have our phones because it was, 
It's like a water park that was attached to a hotel, if you haven't been there before. And it's just like a kid's paradise, essentially. And I, I'm really a kid at heart, so I liked it. I, I think I like it more than they do, but, I mean, it's, it's, we go for them is what I tell them. So it's really fun. But it's one of these places where you go and you, you sleep in a hotel, and there's a water park that's literally attached to the hotel. So every day when we would go, the, we would get in the water all day long. So it would open at 9, and it would close at 8. Okay, it's the full day of water, and we would take breaks for, for meals and those sorts of things. But when 8 o'clock hit, there was also always a very, if you ask my kids after this, they know the schedule of Great Wolf Lodge. We've been a few times. And 8 o'clock, the water park closes. After that point, uh, the arcade is still open. So that's what we do from 8 to 9. From 9 to 9.30, there's a story time from 9.30 to 10. There is a PJ party where they dance around and hopefully wear them out. They never really happened to us. They most like hyped them up and they couldn't go to sleep. But so the eight to nine section was we don't we're not like big arcade people. We don't do tons of that in our family. But that is one place where we do arcade for an hour together always. Okay, so one of the games that uh, we played kind of over and over again. You probably played these uh, growing up. It's really funny that a lot of this stuff has not changed since, I mean, in, in 25 years since I've been a kid. But uh, it, one of the games is called Whack-A-Mole. So if you know this game, it's like there are gophers popping up over and over again, and you're doing your best to hit them. So as a family, there's four of us, we play one, one game. So we're all hitting them, and it's really great. But if my daughters or me were trying to do that, <laughs> like even, even me, I, I can't get them all. Another one we play is Gator Panic. So this is the one, you know, like the alligators come out over and over again, and they're coming out, and you have to hit them on the head to get them to go back in to win the game. So it's like over and over again. You're just, you're, things are just coming out to you, and you're just trying to hit them over and over again. I think you, you can probably at this point understand where I'm getting at, right? Like that, that is what life feels like sometimes. It is a never-ending game of whack-a-mole. They're just coming, one trouble, one stress after the other, and you hit them on the head, and it goes down for a second, but then something else comes back up. Another stress, another trouble. In the text, when that's life, when when, when we are faced in that position, what does Jesus say to do? Believe in God, believe in me. The cure for a troubled heart is belief. That's what Jesus tells us. Now, this is not simply belief on its own. Our culture will tell us, oh, well, just think positive thoughts, right? Like, think things are going to be better, and they will. No, no, it's actually believing in God of your salvation, that he is the one who holds your life in his hands, that he is sovereign over the many situations that are popping their heads up. You give it to him and say, believe in him. We believe in God. A.W. Pink says this about God. I think, I thought it was so profound. He says this, God is possessed of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. He knows what is best for you, and he makes all things work together for your good. He is on the throne, ruling amid the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so none can stay his hand. There is no trouble, no stress, nothing in life that God cannot be there for you. God is intimately involved in every detail of your life, and he cares for every detail of your life. He's no, he knows what's going on and the, and the heartache it causes. And here in the text, he says, I know, I know. Believe, believe in God that he is sovereign. 
Okay, so that's the first one, the troubled heart. Secondly, the prepared place. We're looking at verses 2 through 5. So if you have your bulletin or your Bible open, let's look at verse 2 to start. He says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So Jesus now, he, in verse chapter 13, he says, I, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to my Father. But now he's explaining, this is why I have to go. I need to go so I can prepare a place for you. Now, he's not leaving without a purpose. This is what he's telling the disciples. I'm not leaving just, just to leave. I'm not dying just like every other person. No, I'm dying with a purpose. I'm dying so that you may be free. Now, throughout the generations, this, this idea of room has been translated in many different ways. We see in the KJV, it's actually translated mansions. So it's, it's more emphasizing the, the maybe the bigness of how he's preparing things. But the, the proper translation, what most people would agree on now, is that he's actually talking about um, the expansiveness of his ability to provide a place for anyone who believes. So it's essentially saying there's no max capacity in heaven. All who believe, Jesus has made room for. Jesus has come, and he has made room for any who will turn to him. And he, it shows us an, an intimacy with God, right? If you think about sharing a home with another person, if you've had house guests, you know that there's something intimate about that. A good example is, you know, my pastor uh, in St. Louis, Dan and Ginny Lynn, who was on staff with, I worked with them for four years straight, but they never stayed at my house in St. Louis. When I, for my ordination service, they stayed at my house. And it's a different experience, even than working with them every day. There's a certain intimacy in living with someone else and staying with someone else. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to prepare a place that you're going to live in my house. You're going to live with me forever. So when, we, when he speaks of going to prepare a place, and then we knocked out what place is, but what does it mean for him to go? We might think of, oh, he's going to go and he's going to get the arrangements ready. Like we think about if, if somebody's coming over to the house, we're going to go into our house and we're going to prepare things, right? But the text is actually uh, saying that his going is actually his betrayal. His going is betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection. We need to think of him going as the work that he's about to do to allow us to come into his presence in heaven. That it is only through his death and resurrection that it is possible for you and me to be in the immediate presence of God. So when he says, I am going to prepare a place for you, he's telling the disciples, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die on your behalf that you may live. I am going. That is how you will have a place in heaven is through my crucifixion and resurrection. So this, the worry of the disciples, right? They're troubled in heart that Jesus is leaving. He says, what are we going to do without you, Jesus? Imagine their conversations, right? What are we going to do without him? But the truth is that it was actually for their own benefit, that they were, he was going to pay the penalty of even them. In verse 3, it says, And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now here he's speaking not of um, being resurrected or the Holy Spirit coming, um, but the end time, that the, Jesus will come a second time again. And at that point, believers' bodies will be resurrected and they will live physically with Jesus for all of time. That they will, He will wipe away all pain, all death, 
all sin. At the end of time, he will come again. And his people will live with him in harmony. It takes us back, right? It takes us back to the garden. That there was, there was no separation between God and man. There was perfect communion between humanity and their creator. There was no mediator that was needed, right? Now we need a mediator. We have one. His name is Jesus. But he says, you will have a time where you are intimately in communion with me in the future. So all in all, Jesus is saying this. He's saying that he is going away from them to accomplish only what he can do. By his death and resurrection, he is preparing a place for his people. And his second coming, believers' bodies will be resurrected and live intimately with, his, with their God. So in verse 4, it's kind of leading us into the last point, but he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. So Jesus is saying here, I, I've told you I'm going to the Father. You know where I'm going. But verse 5, Thomas responds, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So obviously they're not getting the point, right? So he's, he, he's saying, you know the way. Thomas, do you know me? You know the way. So that takes us into, he's really setting the stage to proclaim that he is the only way to the Father. So lastly, the provided way. This is where we are in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So this should be understood as an answer to, to Thomas's question. He says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And he is saying, this is the response. Thomas, I, Jesus, the person, am the way to God. I am the only way to the Father. Now, the principal theme in this text, he says three things, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. The principal theme of it is the way. He is the way to the Father. That the truth and the life are simply supportive. He's saying that I am the way because I am the truth and the life. I couldn't be the way if I weren't these things because I am the truth of God and I am the life of God. That he is the truth. He, is, he embodies the revelation of God. Earlier in John, it says the word became flesh. That his revelation that's usually written with a pen became a man. He is proclaiming who he is, not by written words, by a man himself, Jesus. And Jesus is the life. Last week we looked at that he is the foundation of resurrected life, that he is the one who brings dead people alive. Remember that, that all of us are born into death, and he is life for us. So only because he is the truth and the life of God can he be the way to God. He is the sole way to the Father because he is the truth and the life. Verse 7 says this, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. There's lots of uh, people that say that there's, Jesus doesn't claim to be God. He doesn't claim to be deity. There's many subcultures of Christian faith they're, they tent themselves under the Christian faith. We would not. But this is a blatant one right here. He is saying, me and the Father are one. We, I am God. If the I am statement's not enough, this is, this is painting it on the wall as bold as you can get. He's saying, me and the Father are one. If you know me, you know God, Yahweh from the Old Testament. 
you know him, that Jesus is the way to know God. So to an, all in all, to answer Thomas's question, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus is saying, I am the way to the Father, the only one. You know the way because you know me, and I am the only way to the Father. You want the truth and the life of God? Turn to me. You need me alone. In sum, one commentator said this, Follow me. This is what Jesus is saying. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow. I am the truth which you must believe. The life for which you must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. It is only through him that we have eternal life with God the Father. And we can't come to a text like this in our time now and not talk about the severe opposition that comes to a position like this, right? In our postmodern time, what has moved from the Enlightenment forward, essentially, claims these few things. I'm try, I try to sum, sum them up. What's really in opposition to our text today is that there is what, what postmodern believes would be is that there's no objective reality, that there is no scientific or historical or objective truth. There is no truth that is over everyone. What they would say, what the culture will tell us, and what the Enlightenment has moved us forward to is that what's okay for me is okay for me. What's okay for you is okay for you. There's no ultimate truth, so if you want to believe something is true for you, that's great, and I'll affirm that, but I'm going to believe something is different for me because I'm my own person, because I know what's best for me. So with this comes the emphasis of tolerance, right? This is like it's everywhere in our culture. So if one person believes something, they want to live their life their own way over here. We could say, yeah, that's great for you. I'm going to be tolerant with that. You're going to be tolerant with me because I'm going to live over here in this other way, right? But the only intolerance comes in our society when someone claims to have ultimate truth. That's what Jesus does in this text. A modern critic of Christianity recently said this, Christianity is a contentious faith which requires an all-or-nothing commitment to Jesus as the one and only incarnation of the Son of God. I first read that, I'm like, amen! Yes, that's what I believe. That Right, church? That's what we believe. He is the only way. He is the incarnated Son of God. Yet he goes on. We're not going to agree with the rest of it. But he says this, Christians are uncompromising, ordinary, militant, rigorous, imperious, and invincibly self-righteous. You understand the train of thought, right? They're saying those things because our culture says, whatever's fine for me is fine for me. Whatever's fine for you is fine for you. Let's just live and be happy, right? But the Bible is saying, no, actually, this is the one truth for everyone. And, and, and so to, to, to say that, to proclaim that, is, is, is to be called self-righteous. And you say you have the truth for everyone? Oh, that's not right. There's no way. How do you have the truth and it's not mine? 
And we have a hard time hearing this. I did not like reading those words, and I don't like saying them to you. Because I don't believe that's what Christianity is all about. But the truth is that it's not just this generation that, that the gospel has been offensive towards. One commentator says this, when thinking through church history as a whole, for the past 2,000 years, Christianity's claims about the unique truth of Jesus Christ have aroused no end of opposition from Jews, pagans, Muslims, communists, humanists, and atheists. Jesus here in our text is making an exclusive claim. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the one way. He is the truth and the life. You'll notice in the text, he says in the original language, there's a, it, it marks it off that he is the truth, the way, the life. He's not saying I am a, a, a. No, I am the way, the only way. His claim is that he is the only way to God the Father. We need to realize that this truth that he's saying is offensive. It is in itself. We'll talk about in a second how, how does that apply to us. If the gospel itself is offensive to our culture, how are we going to go out? But first, I read a story about <clears throat> a man, his name was Skip Ryan, and he served with the U.S. Department of State. And one time, the group held a briefing at the White House. It was held in the Roosevelt Room, which is a conference room, right across the hallway from the Oval Office where the president worked. After the meeting was over, the State Department official in charge asked if Ryan, this man, wanted to see the Oval Office since the president was gone. He was out of town. And Ryan, this man, reflects on the whole experience afterwards, and he says two things. He says, firstly, he says this, I could feel the awe at being in such a place that had written history. Secondly, he said, I could not have possibly entered the Oval Office unless someone took me there that had authorization to do so. If this is true about the Oval Office of the President in our United States, how much more is it true about the presence of God? Right? That there, we need someone authorized to walk us into His presence. We cannot do it on our own. We don't have the authority. And the claim in the text, Jesus says, that's me. I am the authorized one. I have the authority. So kind of going back to the offensiveness of the message, right? That, That it is important for us now, in our time especially, when we're going out, we're talking a lot about what it looks like for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus into El Paso, into Juarez. We need to go And we need to be gentle and humble and kind and loving in our attitude towards other people. The truth is that the very message of the cross is going to be offensive. So it's offensive enough, so we need to let our attitudes towards other people not be the offensive part. That we need to cover others in kindness even when they don't deserve it. That we need to think when we go out on mission, it needs to be done in love. And we need to do our best to lay our lives down for others so they can see how much God has done for us. If you're like me, you know that I've been in the faith a long time, right? That 
having this knowledge can make you feel at times, you probably won't say this with your lips, I wouldn't except for I'm trying to give you an illustration, that it feels like you have it together some. It can, it can lead to saying, oh, well, I have the right answer. In a, a culture that says, oh, you have the right answer, you have the right answer, you have the right answer, and that's okay. I have the right answer, right? That can lead to pride. It can lead us to actually be the opposite of what we should be. That it, can, it can lead us to look down on others. So when we go and proclaim the gospel, it actually we can go in an offensive tone and say, you should know this, right? Like we, don't, we go in pride instead of humility. But, but this should, this, what I'm trying to do is lead us back to the gospel, right? That we were in dire need. We were dead from last week. We were born into death and he made us alive. So when we go out and, on mission and, and proclaim the gospel, it needs to be in a, a humble attitude, yet we can be confident in Jesus is enough to save us. And it's only in his strength that we boast. So church, the, the question is, are you willing to lay your lives down for the neighbors that I can see right through that window? Because we looked at this, I don't know, six weeks ago maybe, it's upwards of 500,000 people are walking around in our city in the darkness, right? These are only the people that just don't profess any affiliation with a faith. Half a million people in our culture. So are we willing to lay down our lives for them? Now, that doesn't mean compromising our beliefs in Jesus. No, we never will die on that. But our comforts and the things that we really like to keep we can lay those down often because we need to be gentle and humble and kind. One author says this, Those of us who identify as Christians have been given a resource that enables us to respond to outrage and wrath in a healing and productive and life-giving way because Jesus Christ has loved us at our worst. We can love ourselves at their worst because Jesus Christ has forgiven us for all our wrongs, we can forgive others who have wronged us. Because Jesus Christ offered a gentle answer instead of pouring out punishment and rejection for our offensive and sinful names, we, we can offer gentle answers to those who behave offensively and sinfully towards us. So the call today, if it's me, you know, it's, it's hard being a preacher because I preach this to myself first. <laughs> All week, right? The call to us is that let them see your gentleness and allow the Lord to work through the offensiveness of the gospel because salvation is of his work. He is the one that saves. That we should find common ground with the, even the most heinous person that hates the Lord, pointing them to the one that made them. That we're called to proclaim the gospel, yes, that it is good news that God has provided a way. That I believe that to my core, that it is good news, and we need to proclaim that. That we need to go into the world and say, believe, turn, just like he said today. And if you don't believe and you're here today, this is my plea to you that you turn to Jesus. See what he has done for you, even when you're completely against him. But we believe that this is good news, and our character as we go out, needs to reflect how much the Lord has done for us. That we love our friends and our neighbors, pointing them in word and deed, in our words and how we act towards them, towards the love of Jesus. 
Church, Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. He is the one who has made your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He is the one that keeps you close to him all of your days. Let's pray together. Father, we know that we need you uh, each day. We need your renewing power of our hearts to allow your work to come into our lives, that we may be changed more and more. And Father, we pray that we would come to your word each day with a humble heart, and we would go out from this place on a Sunday and each day into our workplaces and neighborhoods with our family. And Lord, that we would be humble in heart, showing people the goodness of your Son, that he, sent, he came on, on your sending to lay his life down for us. And Father, we're called to do the same. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, that we would lay our lives down not for any glory that it brings to us, but that we may point them to you. Father, that we may just be an avenue, a means of which the people come to see your goodness. Father, we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.